Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone. It's Charles Marshall hosting the Neil Garfield Show today. And it is... Thursday, July 23rd, 2020, and a welcome from here in uh, now sunny California, the clouds having peeled off from this morning. So this show, we will discuss the COVID craziness and its continuing impacts on the economy, which are so profound and so entrenched at this particular juncture that those impacts are greatly affecting the ability of tens of millions of Americans to pay their mortgage, to pay their rent. And so the numbers are not completely nuts at this point as to the number of defaults and uh, the extent to which borrowers are dramatically behind in payments, be they mortgage payments or rental payments. Nevertheless, we are at the leading edge of a potential tsunami of foreclosures and evictions. And so the purpose of today's show is to throw some light on what that looks like and also provide some intel on strategies and the various legal areas that borrowers are already familiar with in many cases, but should be reprised of if today's information is not an appraisal, then they should have a reprising of various topics and matters that hopefully we'll put them in a position where they can do further research, further consultation to address their problem. As always, I will remind listeners that there is no legal advice offered on this show. This is a topical show. Though I will say that uh, it's also a purpose of this show to impart various kinds of wisdom. We may not be providing legal advice per se, and we are not. Uh, we would like to think that at times we have nuggets of wisdom that we can relate that, again, listeners can then follow up on. So this tsunami of foreclosures, a lot of it is now potentially being exacerbated due to a Senate logjam and whether this should be blamed on Republicans primarily or not, 
Republicans do seem to have dropped the ball on getting a reauthorization of the economic stimulus unemployment payments. Now, there is a moral hazard, as we know, in providing these $600 weekly checks for unemployed workers, where, in effect, they're better off not going back to work, even if the corona rules in their area would allow them to go back to work. On the other hand, we know that trillions of dollars have been poured onto and into the coffers of the big lenders, the big institutional companies, and we rarely hear anymore about that moral hazard, about all the free money sloshing around, about how those trillions of dollars provide a perverse incentive for those companies not to do proper, proper business practice and instead continually engage in irresponsible economic and other conduct. So I don't think there's much moral valence in the notion of making regular people feel like, well, we don't want to give them too much incentive not to go back to work. So apart from the politics of all that, the reality is if the Senate doesn't band its act together and both the Democrats and Republicans really put something on the table this weekend, and there are signs that that will happen. I don't know the latest news at this hour. Uh, There might be a bill that's actually going to go forward, but as of now, or at least my understanding this morning, and less than until there's something garnered this weekend, the 600-a-week unemployment benefits, the federal sort of add-on that's put with any state program any, in any of the 50 states, that unemployment uh, will lapse, and the regular unemployment will be there, yes, from the states, but as everybody knows, unemployment, even in a place like California, it's not going to really replace not come anywhere near replacing the waves that the person was otherwise making. So this is a big deal. It's yet another pressure point. And frankly, whether or not these unemployment benefits happen, uh, it's safe to say, it's fair to say that the foreclosure tsunami is coming and it's going to come ashore at some point regardless. It's just that if the Senate doesn't get their act together and reissue some version of these benefits, even if it does end up paying people more than they otherwise would have made work working, then then all bets are off on on the pylon of, of additional uh, defaults that will happen. Now, I will say, and I'm, I'm following Neil's blog here, I mean, I'm using the word default, just so listeners will know, in a very topical way. I mean, I happen to play golf. We could be talking about golf during this program. And if I were talking about golf, there might be certain terms that are 
denotative, meaning dictionary definition, and there might be certain terms that are colloquial, meaning that come from common usage. And when I talk about those terms and I'm talking about golf, clearly people would be understanding me to be talking about golf. So I use the term default as Neil often uses it himself in a sort of cyclical way, which is to say, you know, we're talking about foreclosure mortgages. You know, we're talking about a situation where the borrower is behind. But when it comes to the legal analysis, and again, this is not providing some specific legal assessment to a specific individual or even group. It's just thoughts on the topic at hand, which again is mortgage foreclosure and the great increase we will see in defaults. So is there really a default? Well, as Neil has been saying for years, and I have maintained myself, there really isn't a default. And one angle on this, which Neil has brought to uh, attention again, is that rather than looking at the chain of title issues, which, of course, are fundamental and there's a lot going on, that this show and like uh, individuals out there who have looked into these principles and have followed the, the theories and have seen the light, so to speak, Yes, the chain of title analysis is very sound, and it does expose that these assignments are invalid in many cases. However, uh, Neil's blog take today, and I think it's well taken, is that one has a first principles look even more to the point at CPA standards and the uh, standards, for instance, of the Financial Accounting Standards Board. If you look at these standards, a securitized loan does not meet the standards of a real loan. And one can say that because whenever you look at traditional accounting methods, and these accounting methods, by the way, have been around for hundreds of years. This is not some collegiate theories and academic finesse that came down into the firmament of American economic reality in the last, shall we say, few years, try hundreds of years. So for a given financial event to be considered a loan, it must be listed as an asset on the loaner's financial sheets, and you will always find assets will, in effect, be mirrored by liabilities. So if there's an asset on somebody's books, that means, in the form of a loan specifically, that means that there's an expectation of payment and a need of payment to cover what is also a liability of that asset. On the other hand, through the essentially finesse of securitization, there is no listed asset on any quote-unquote lender's financial sheet, spreadsheet, accounting sheet. 
So I think this is something that really there's an opportunity to, to start to explore this from a legal point of view. And it will be one of the purposes of this show to go into this in more detail in the future. Though at the moment, uh, this show is not going to address this at any great length today. However, for a future show, yes, we will be doing that. Because one way to look at this is if there's no reportable asset, if there's no defined monetary asset, if there's no accounting asset on the financial accounting of a specific lender, of a specific firm, instead there's a lot of hocus-pocus and moving around of numbers and double, triple, quadruple uh, figuring on where the uh, securitized loan is actually located and who's responsible for it. When you step away from all that, what you end up seeing is that it is a big charade and it's a big finesse in many ways. And so yet we are using for convenience sake this notion of default. So to get into the meat and potatoes of today's topic, when you go into default, again, we'll put that in quotes, put that in the classic ironic air quotes. When you go into that ironic default, which unfortunately in the real world and the legal world is still treated as a default until and unless challenged. So you're in that default period or it's coming up. You're already two or three months behind on your mortgage. Uh, I will focus on the non-judicial foreclosure framework since, as everybody knows, that's my, my purview. That's where my legal practice comes into floor in California. So there could be a two to three months pre-NOD notice of default period here in California. Sometimes it's even longer. You are going to get various pre-NOD letters, which are also authorized and needed for a servicer, or sometimes it'll be the nominal trust, securitized trust, who will issue the NOD, but it's almost always the servicer who is directing a sales trustee who they've appointed through assignment. And then that sales trustee will reference the specific loan, which will be supposedly held by either a nominal securitized trust or sometimes the servicer supposedly holds the subject loan on its own books. Regardless, it's the servicer that directs the foreclosure process through assignment that the sales trustee issues the notices on behalf of the servicer and on behalf of the securitized trust if there's a separate one. So what the borrower needs to do or needs to know is that, yes, they do have a time period they need to respond in, and that does vary from state to state. Here in California, it's fairly significant. Once the NOB is issued, realistically, you have almost 120 days before your property can actually end up on an auction dock. On the other hand, that time goes by fairly quickly. And once the notice of trustee sale uh, is generated, uh, I've seen both numbers, but essentially it's 20 or 21 days where that 
statutorily uh, notice of trustee sale must be provided, meaning the notice of trustee sale cannot be issued previous to 21 days before the sale. So when you get an NOTS, it needs to give you some period of weeks before your sale would actually even happen. On the other hand, if you do nothing, then you do have real problems. So I think it's critical uh, when you are in the pre-NOD period to do something like a qualified written request or otherwise verification of debt in some way challenge the debt because you will get a verification of debt letter in California as a part of the NOD process. This is pre-NOD. It's important with that 30-day period in which you're given to respond to the verification of debt sent to you by the servicer. It's important to challenge it through your own denial of the, uh, the debt, reframing of the debt, and consulting with a qualified foreclosure attorney, sometimes various forensic audit specialist, I think is one step you can make to try to slow the train of the foreclosure heading down the tracks of you. Now, once the NOD is issued, there is a potential negotiation period. Oh, it's rare that there'll be a legitimate negotiation taking place. When I say legitimate, I mean one that really gives the borrower a fair shake and a fair opportunity to be default secured other than simply paying back everything with all of the, uh, the late payments and whatnot as well. Now, when uh, properties were massively underwater in California as recently, or you might say as far back ago, either way, we're talking quite a few years, six to seven years realistically. Uh, in that time period, yes, you can still get um, negotiated deals during the uh, NLG but prior to the NOTS period, when properties were massively underwater. It's not to say that that never happens, but mortgage services and lenders, where the situation where there's equity or where the property is not massively upside down, they often have less incentive to do a deal because they know if they take the property to sale, they're going to at least get their lien amount. So if you go the lawsuit route in a non-judicial foreclosure state, uh, we've talked many times about what that looks like on this show, and I'm sure we will be revisiting some of the mechanics of that in the future. Uh, one way that you stop a sale, and everybody has heard about this, is with a temporary restraining order. It's something Neil has often said, and I think is very much worth repeating is that you need a court order to stop a sale. Now, sometimes you can get that court order in bankruptcy uh, unless you filed one too many bankruptcies 
within a 365-day rolling period, then you theoretically do have the right to file another one, and the stay is automatic. That's why it's called an automatic stay. If you're in civil court, you must have a signed judge's order to stop an auction sale. You may get a commitment from the servicer. You may get a commitment from the sales trustee during negotiations in response to a demand letter, in response to a new lawsuit. You may get some cooperation, and you may even get commitments to postpone the sale, which there's always the issue of whether you can trust that the postponement has happened. In my experience, that trust is largely well-placed. That is to say, it's not misplaced, it's well-placed. Despite the abusiveness and sometimes even the evilness of the institutional players that bring these properties to sale, most of the time, I would even say the great majority of the time, when you're told that the sale will be postponed or has been postponed, there is such an institutional framework and a check to make sure their precise their own procedures are, are are being followed in accordance largely with California law, for instance, then bottom line, they will postpone it. They say they will. Now, of course, we all know that they've lied sometimes. We all know that they trick borrowers. We all know that they've even snowed attorneys and sometimes gone through with a sale that they claim would be postponed. That. I'm not going to say rarely happens, but it's certainly not standard practice, and it's unusual for it to happen. On the other hand, unless you have a court order, there is no guarantee the sale will be postponed. If you have a court order and the sale goes through anyway, then there can be a legal issue about whether there was proper notice. Uh, The law is very protective of the court order holder in those cases, which means if a sale goes through, the other side is going to have a lot of explaining to do, not the person with the court order. So those sales will definitely be reversed if they do go through. And again, uh, if you get a TRO, that's great as far as it goes. However, it'll just buy you a few weeks' time, and then you'll need to go in for a preliminary injunction hearing, which will enjoin the servicer from going through with any sale during the pendency of a lawsuit. So it's very important to make sure your TRO is very robust. It's certainly true from a strategic point of view that you can often win a TRO by manipulating the timing in a legal way. And there's certain things you can do to make it less likely that the other side will show up. For a TRO hearing, However, it's a better strategy no matter how you use that particular aspect of the TRO strategy. It's a better strategy to make sure you've got strong bonafides in your paperwork. Because even if you can use legal procedure, which you can, to make it less likely for the other side to show up or be in a position to quit what you're doing, there will be a preliminary injunction here. And it will typically be within a few weeks of the TRO there. So to prevail at that preliminary injunction hearing, you need to have a strong framework in your TRO paperwork and then in the subsequent paperwork for the preliminary injunction hearing. Now, let's say you don't have 
either the ability or their other variables in the TRO preliminary injunction framework is just not available. You can stop foreclosures with bankruptcy procedure, as most of the borrowers on this uh, listening to this program know. Uh, there are a bunch of rules for that. One of the most important ones is you can't have three filings within one year period. So in essence, what that means is you file, let's say, one case March 1st, 2020. That bankruptcy, let's say, gets dismissed. You file another one November 1st, 2020. Then that means you can't file another bankruptcy until April 2021. Uh, because if you filed that third one, then you would have had three pending within one year. So that's a very important rule. And sometimes borrowers can get what are called in rem relief orders. Remember in bankruptcy, the lender's remedy is to go after a motion for relief from stay, which would lift the automatic stay. They often will win those, and even summarily in many cases. So if they're able to lift the stay, sometimes they will ask that the bar the 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 bankrupting party be forbidden from filing again, either for a period of six months, sometimes even years, or they're forbidden from having any future stay apply to the property, even if they're allowed to file again. Uh, also, of course, there's appellate procedure that's available, though. I think for the purposes of this show, one needs to remember, one needs to know if this is a first look at this particular aspect of the foreclosure world. One needs to know that appellate procedure is very thin on the ground when it comes to getting court orders. Now, as a practical matter, just as having a litigation going against a servicer and or sales trustee in some cases, and the nominal trust, just as litigation proceeding against these parties will often essentially quiet them from proceeding with foreclosure sales, sometimes even canceling ones that were arranged, just as the litigation procedure will, will often get them to back off from selling your property, uh, your case being on appeal will often have a similar Results. Uh, now, of course, you need to have a bona fide basis for appeal, and there will often be those in any particular lower court record. And that's all case by case. And of course, you would need to consult with an appellate attorney if you're considering appealing, or at a minimum, consult with attorneys even on a consultative basis if you intend to do the appeal yourself. Uh, there are a lot of ins and outs. It's complicated legal procedure. Uh, but one thing to keep in mind, it's very rare for an appellate court to enjoin a sale of a property, which is not to say that it doesn't happen or can't happen. It's to say that it is very rare. So one should not look to appellate procedure to enjoin a sale. However, as a practical matter, if your case is on appeal, 
typically there will not be a sale of your property. Again, that's not a guarantee. That's just basic practice that I'm conveying here. Uh, now, you also have unlawful detainer evictions. If your property does go to sale, whether you're in the middle of litigation or not with a, a regular unlimited lawsuit against the lender, uh, the unlawful detainer procedure can be visited on you, and you can be subject to eviction proceedings after the sale of the property. Those typically will happen. Not always, but typically. That's another complicated legal area. And the fundamental of that is you absolutely need to apprise yourself or reprise yourself of proper legal procedure in California. In California, that will often involve a motion to quash and a demur followed in some months by an answer. So that's all the time we have for today's show. And either I or Neil will be back next week. And I uh, do, do wish our listeners to stay well in this uh, very difficult period we have here in American history. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.